The challenge is real and I'm not putting out there that it's easy. It's, it's hard work every single day for the rest of your life. So welcome to season two of Finding Your Range podcast with me, Jeannie Devon. I'm your host and I'm really delighted to be back for another season of podcasts that look into hypermobility, EDS and chronic pain. And I'm really thrilled. What a great way to start our season is to be joined by Lara Bloom, who is the president and CEO of the EDS Society. So huge thank you to Lara for joining us today. Um, Now, most of the audience, because most of our audience are obviously EDS, hypermobile community members and doctors, but some of you may not know who Lara is. So I'm going to read you her bio and then we'll get chatting to her. So Lara is the president and CEO of the EDS Society and responsible for globally raising awareness of rare, chronic and invisible diseases, specializing in the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, excuse me, hypermobility spectrum disorders, which is HSD and related conditions. Lara manages coordinated medical collaboration, raising funds for research, and focusing on the global progression of EDS and HSD. She speaks at conferences all over the world, lecturing to medical students and professionals and supports specialists in the field by offering her experience as a leading patient expert. Commemorating 10 years in the field of patient advocacy, Laura was officially appointed a professor of practice in patient engagement and global collaboration at Penn State College of Medicine, <clears throat> USA, on March 11th, 2020. That's awesome. Thank <laughs> you, Laura. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks for having me here. Not a problem. Our pleasure. So I'm going to get started with our questions. Um, so we've got quite a few, and a few of my Zebra Club members also sent in some questions. Brilliant. Um, yeah, so they're all excited to be hearing from you. Um, so before we get started in what you do now, could you share a little bit about your own personal journey to get your EDS diagnosis? Yeah, sure. So I'm 41 now and I was diagnosed back in 2004 when I was 24 years old. So it feels like yesterday and a million years ago all at <laughs> once. Yeah. And I was symptomatic. I had the usual diagnostic odyssey that so many um, in the community feel and face. And that was struggling to get a diagnosis, struggling to be believed, having lots of pain and symptoms and not knowing what was causing any of it. Yeah. A lot of it was attributed to growing up, hormones, uh, being accident prone, being a hypochondriac, maybe having anxiety or depression and feeling like you know so many of those things just didn't align with what I thought were causing the problems and I remember being symptomatic from definitely the age of 11 onwards but my my parents remember odd things happening from from earlier on so really it's, it's been there for for most of my life yeah and my sister as well has had a a lot of medical issues as well and was diagnosed after I was diagnosed but she also had lots of misdiagnoses and um, bad issues with mainly for her her kind of uh, bladder and bowel and and all of those things haven't actually come into the light until very recently so even back then 
we didn't realize just how much of our medical histories were attributed potentially to the, the diagnosis. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I've really faced the, certainly the trifecta and more of what most people living um, with hypermobile EDS have. Although I'm a little bit of an unusual case in that I don't meet the 2017 criteria, mainly because um, I don't have the skin involvement and mm -hmm. a lot of my, so my wrists have been fused. So a lot of the signs to measure hypermobility are now hard to do, but also I have unusual um, internal tissue fragility. I have a prolapsed liver. I've, I've got uh, unexplained enlarged um, arteries. I've, uh, you know, lots of things that aren't typical with hypermobile mm. EPS. Yes. And so although I was diagnosed with hypermobile EDS when I was 24 and have a lot, you know, I have POTS, I have the GI issues, I have found mast cells mm -hmm. on biopsies and display some of those things, although I haven't uh, sought out a diagnosis of anything formally with the mast cells. Um, I mainly focus on treating the symptoms. So it's, it's yeah. less um, important for me at this stage in my life to kind of have diagnosis for each issue although I know retrospectively how important a diagnosis can be in yeah. getting that management and care when you don't have anything so it's I, I understand the, the the pros and cons for both but yeah I think as you know as I've got older they've kind of said it's probably a type with the mutation yet unknown which I think is um something that some certainly face that's still uncertainty Yes. But as I said, I don't really mind what it is. I just really need to focus on managing the symptoms yeah. and keeping on top of things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. And and your sort of journey to, you know, I, I, I remember listening to your story and you were kind of searching and you end, how you ended up doing what you do now is really interesting, isn't it? Because you went to a meeting and then you met somebody and... That's really, how did that come about? Yeah, so I think it's the true definition of serendipity and <laughs> being in the right place at the right time and also kind of giving into the universe. I'm a big fan of the law of attraction and I practice it daily and it really, um, when I'm on it and practicing it, I feel the difference so much emotionally, uh, mentally and physically. So yeah. I've always had that you know what's meant will be what you put out you get back what you are, yes. you are what you think and all of those things so yes you know rewind back to being 25 26 I'd received my diagnosis a few years before and I'd kind of just been okay cool that's what I've got put it away and yeah. I was working at Getty Images at the time as a photographer and I was in a relationship and I was just you know, at a place where it's like all good. And then suddenly I got an unexplained infection in my, in my liver of all places. And I was in hospital for a long time and the infection just threw everything. And I wasn't able to get stand up without my heart going at a million miles an hour and my blood pressure dropping. And I'd never really experienced that before knowingly, although I had felt the symptoms. Now I know again, yeah. retrospect, what it gives yes. you. Um, I had had a period uh, of a few years where I would have what I called my funnies, where I would suddenly just, you know, I'd feel hot saliva in my mouth. I'd be sick immediately and I would have to lay down and I would feel really dizzy. And I just called it my funnies. Again, now I know that that was all my autonomic system yeah. being up in the air. 
But this hit me in a way where it was unmanageable. I wasn't able to be discharged from hospital. And of course, the first place they went was, you've got an anxiety about going home. And I said, believe me, the only anxiety I have about is staying here. You know, I, I can't control my blood pressure dropping and my heart rate raising in a way that's clearly showing on your machines. And it was, I was actually under a cardiologist at the time that just didn't know what this could be. And he, in my mind, he seemed quite dismissive. And I have to say, it's just such a lovely story of how a medical professional can learn and educate themselves. And that cardiologist who at that time, I was his only EDS patient, now lectures at our conferences sometimes and has you know, le- taught himself and, and realized how much he knew about POTS and autonomic issues. And I still see him to this day. And so I just think, you know, sometimes sidetracking, but stick with those doctors that at first don't get it and realize that anyone can become an expert in these conditions and care for you. So yeah. that, that's a side note. But so I was in this position where I was um, really not doing well. I was discharged eventually and then readmitted to St. Mary's, diagnosed with POTS. And it took about a year and a half to level out my symptoms so that I know to use a wheelchair I mean it was really bad very very bad very symptomatic Um, and of course a lot of deconditioning happened and it's that vicious circle that we all know um, that can happen with deconditioning and how everything then gets worse but you're you just can't get to that place and start rebuilding so I was there I was in it and I started to do some research and think I just want to speak to people about this and meet other people that live with it and speak to doctors other than the few that I have able, been able to speak to. And I was under Professor Rodney Graham at the time. And I went to a conference in America that was run by EDNF, which was the Addis Danlos National Foundation. And I walked into the room and saw the full spectrum in front of me, every type, within every type, every eventuality that could be, um, you know. And I was equally petrified as I was inspired and felt like I had come home in some way. Yeah. And it was the most incredible validating few days. And I just was like, wow, I had to travel to Texas to do that. I wish there was something like that here. Yeah. And I, when I got back, I reached out to Professor Graham and I said, you know, I just did this amazing thing. And he was like, there's a support group in the UK, just go on Google. And I think page five or six, it came up the yeah. support group run out of a little church hall in Aldershot. And I reached out to them and Um, Something I don't actually mention often in this story is that they said they had an upcoming one day conference. And I remember going with my parents and we were maybe one of five people in this freezing cold church. And it I, I obviously then had the conference to compare it to. And I was just like, no, this is not giving me what I just got. And it was through no lack of trying, you know, the people sure. were so dedicated and had EDS yeah. themselves, but there wasn't the funding, which we all know, yeah. you know the key yes. reason to make these things work. Yes. And so I kind of went away and I was thinking about ways I could help. I was thinking about raising money and what I could do for them. And at the same time, I was invited to a gallery event Um, at Getty Images where I had previously worked. I had taken some time out and I was thinking about changing my career to do something that would work better with the body that I had. Standing in photo shoots and lifting photographic equipment is not the best friend of EDS. um, (laughs) Um, So I went to this gallery event and one of my 
oh, my friend's husband's friend was there. So it was completely unconnected. And we ended up talking and he said, oh, you used to work here as well, didn't you? And I said, yes. He said, how come you've left? And I said, oh, it's long and boring health condition that I'm sure you've never heard of. And he said, try me. And I said, I've got EDS. And he just, his face was like, my daughter died of that when she was 19. She had vascular EDS. And that was it. It was like the universe just brought us together. We couldn't stop talking. And he said, you know, I, I don't mean to sound arrogant, but I'm a wealthy man. And I've been looking to make a substantial donation to the organization, but I don't really know what they would do with it. And I said, it's funny you say that. I met them, you know, just recently where I went to one of their conferences and I was a little bit uninspired, especially after experiencing what I just had. And I'd love to do something because I think it's no lack of want, it's just funding. Yeah. They said, why don't we meet them together? Do me a favor after experiencing what you just did and being a patient that's living with this, write down everything you would want for them to do as an organization in the UK. And that's what I did. And I wrote down everything that you can think of from make hoodies to <laughs> conferences to having a Facebook page. They didn't have a Facebook page back then. And, you know, for, create ways for people to connect and all, all of these things that I thought, what would have helped me when I was yeah. starting out and what would help me now? So yeah. it was quite an easy list to put together, to be honest. And we went together and in the tiny little room and we, it was the three of us. And in my usual um, over the top way with my hands, I was like, and you should do this and you should do this. <laughs> I can help by putting on an event. And, you know, we really want to help support this and blah, blah, blah. And, and at the end, the, the, the gentleman that was with me, he said, I've decided what I want to do with my money. Um, I know you're about to start a second degree. So that's what I had decided in the interim to do it was a four-year course in international relations and global politics and I was looking for a part-time job to do in between and he said you know I'll pay you for the length of your degree to do what you said on that piece of paper and if at the end of it you don't want to do this then you can walk away and know you've done everything you could in that period and hopefully got into wow. a point where someone can take over yeah and in my head I was like what I've never run a charity. I've gone in and studied politics and that's what I want to do. And it was just very overwhelming. But I thought, you know, that old cliche, if not me, then who? You know, I, I'm passionate. I know what's needed to do. I've managed to get someone that's willing to donate the money and I've got the time. And Amazing. there began my new life and my new career. And it was very addictive to do things that, that helps people. And yeah. And when I was in it, I realized how much there was that needed to be done and how satisfying it was to be part of making that difference and yeah. realizing I could be ambitious and have a, a successful career and not compromise what I wanted to get out of my life professionally, but also be able to do some good. And that Amazing. was 11 years ago. And if you would have told me 11 years ago, you'll be a professor, you'll be running a global organization, so much, you know, there'll be a registry, there'll be, you know, million dollars funded into research and all these things that have happened. It's phenomenal. And really only in the past five years since we've launched the society and really yeah. put into place that global collaboration and fostering those, that networking, that it's all just yeah. suddenly coming together beautifully and it's it just is. such an honor and privilege to be part of it every day absolutely oh you know you're such an inspiration and you know we thank the universe that you were brought <laughs> together and it and it panned out like that because thank you you know you what 
I just want to say you mentioned when you went to your first conference in America and you walked into that room and you saw all the spectrum. And I just want to thank you because when I when I came to Las Vegas for the first time in 2017 mm-hmm. and walked into that room, I was like you say, it was like, wow, I've come home. Yeah. Everyone understands me. Nobody's judging me. I feel I feel at home. And yeah. It, it, I've said this before, um, it, it changed my life. It literally changed my life that day. So huge thank you to you and everything you do. Um, and, and it brings me on to, you know, like you say, the past five years, really, since you formed the EDS Society. I mean, and you mentioned some of them. The things that you've achieved under that sh- relatively short period of time it's yeah. just phenomenal. I mean, it's, I, I mean, I can't believe it. I look at it, I'm like, this is just, honestly, I've, it's just amazing. So, and I've kind of put this into two camps. I've got the patient side and the professional side, because obviously you're dealing with both. So Absolutely. let's start with the patients. If you could pick, and I've been a bit mean because I've narrowed it down to three and you've done loads of things. But <laughs> if you could pick three patient orient- orientated things that you've introduced that you're most proud of and um, uh, sort of improving patient outcomes and experiences. What three things do you think you would say have been your, you know, the most impactful? Oh, okay. So I think that, and firstly, I'll say that a lot of people are, are very generous with their praise and their thanks for, for what I've done. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I've worked damn hard and it's been wonderful, but my goodness, does it take a village? And I think so much of the success around the society is how everyone has gone all in, you know, every yeah. professional, every staff member, every volunteer. And we've created something that people want to be part of. And that's the most wonderful thing about yeah. it and how quickly it's come together and I think in terms of patients creating that community where we have gone from not having an Instagram page not having I think maybe having 4,000 Twitter followers if that I think maybe even a thousand having a very small Facebook page and it being all US centric all of those things because of course we 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 relaunched out of what was EDNF that had also done incredible things within the US and suddenly making that touching across, you know, 40 plus countries, hundreds of thousands of people in a short space of time. When you see the amount of people that attend our events, when you hear from people that are like, I thank you for giving me this opportunity to attend this conference virtually to, join virtual support group calls, to be part of the forums on Inspire. That is an amazing feeling because you know, as you felt many years ago, very low, what that will mean for people. And I think in some ways I'm grateful for the pandemic because I remember very clearly in February 2020, we had our staff retreat just before everything really hit the fan. And we sat there and we were like, we really want to take us to a hybrid level 
and we want to be reaching as many people as we can. And we were talking about having watch party viewings and really encouraging our affiliates to come together and really bringing to, together people all over the world, virtually in smaller groups and bigger groups. And it was our five-year plan to get to that. And suddenly the world caught on fire. Yeah. And that's another thing I'm incredibly proud of um, is our COVID response. And yeah. it's down to people like yourselves that just gave it everything to help us to give that to the community, that support virtually that has allowed us to get into the homes and the minds of lots of people to make them feel supported, yeah. validated, and that yeah. they're not alone. And I think that's the thing I'm most proud of, really successfully achieving that in a very, very short space of time. And really mm -hmm. leading in so many ways, you know, the, the translations into often five languages per event. Yeah. And so reaching more and more and more people around the world that had never heard someone speak because they couldn't understand English, yeah. you know, things like that. So I would yeah. say that part that community outreach the way that we've been able to go virtual and global in a very short space of time yeah. would be number one yeah um i think number two uh, the thing is is it's hard to separate because so many things start oh. with the patients and impact the community yeah. the professionals or start with the professionals and impact the community but i think um the registry um yeah. definitely not not only will help with research but it makes the community feel like their voice matters and they can give their information their, their medical records their data to lead to change and that's very empowering and that wasn't there before and then of course that in turn helps the professionals who can use that data to do the research that will then come back and impact the the patient's lives so yeah i would say the registry, although it could probably sit in both. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I'd say, um, lastly, you know, looking at the breaking down barriers and that whole effort and really listening and hearing from the community. Yeah. One thing that I'll always say is you never get it right all the time. And that's okay as long as you learn from it. And yeah. so... For example, when we focused on the 2017 criteria, we weren't involved with creating the outcomes, but we were in charge of messaging that to the community. That was our role. Our role was financing and facilitating the consortium to be able to come together and work on those outcomes. Although many people, for some reason, think it was all me and I, I created it all. And I'm, you know, did it all to fit my phenotype of which I don't even meet the criteria, so it's bizarre. <laughs> Um, but there's this, that misunderstanding and that misconception of what has actually happened. And I think yeah. when, you, when you just focus on the, the research and the progression and we were like, wow, look what we've done that hasn't been done for 20 years and we can't wait to tell the world. And this has all been done with the very best intentions that would lead to better care, better diagnosis, better research, better management. Mm -hmm. And because you know that, you assume everyone will get that. And so when we kind of, for want of a better word, marketed out all the work that the consortium had done, I think we were all quite thrown with how the community reacted in some ways to it, some very grateful, but others very, very scared. And so we learned from that about how important it is to really think about 
every outcome of how people can react to it. Think about that messaging more and not just the science, but really think about what that will mean in real times. And we're learning it every year, the consequences of that, we're reevaluating the criteria. Now, we did the best that we could at that time, but I'm grateful to say that we've now moved on and we're in an even better place. So I think thinking about that equity and not that equality that there's different, you know, someone living with EDS or think they have EDS in Africa where there's, you know, one or two geneticists that might be able to help them in the whole country are going to have very different issues to someone living in New York who's struggling to get a diagnosis. And how do we help both? And I'm really proud of those efforts that are going into that. And we're by no means there, but we're working on it. You know, the fact that it's really white women that are shown in presentations, in literature, the publications, what can we do to ensure that that's no longer the case? Mm -hmm. And we're already making small changes in that yeah. and trying to be more representative of our entire community because you can only kind of put out what you get in. And so we need to make sure that we're asking for what we need so that we get in and we can yeah. put out. So I'd say that's, that's the, the, the last part, but there's lots and, and lots fall there's under lots. that, but yeah, it, it's, been, it's been amazing. And yeah. the professionals, I think I'm most proud of the consortium because that started as a real dream. I remember very clearly back in 2015, we, I was working then with Shane, who was the previous executive director of EDNF, and yeah. we co-executive directed for a, a few years. And I left EDS UK in 2015 and that first year up until May 2016 was all about the groundwork and getting the right people around the table because we knew with this big dream we had that it was all dependent on who was involved. Yeah. And if we didn't get the right people invested, it would all be worthless. And we went around, we traveled to Glasgow, I remember, to meet with um, Professor Malfay was there with a lot of people that come around the world for a meeting there. We, we met with uh, Brad Tinkle, Claire Francomano, you know, all, all, all of the people that we knew had to be around the table, Peter yeah. Byers. And we said, what is the best thing that we could do to change things? And they all said, and we agreed and almost proposed this as well, that we needed a new criteria, a management and care guidelines. It had been 20 years. Right. And so the initial plan was to bring together these everyone that was needed from around the world to work on that effort. And we didn't really see past that. We just knew that that's what we needed to do. And so in the end, I think we had 90 people and we wow. separated into all the comorbidities and into all the types. And we put chairs in place for each group and we brought patient experts into every group. And they worked together for free, day and night, at all hours of the day, to get it done and published 18 papers, which is what made up the 2017 uh, criteria, which was so trailblazing in every way and the most cited and downloaded EDS papers that, that I think have ever been. And amazing. we then said, okay, well, this has been great. Let's keep doing it. And we kind of said to everyone, would you be willing to stay involved with this? Because there's so much that needs to be done. And of course, the next next project we took in was the CDEs, the common data elements that we will hope will inform our registry and, and lead to consistency across the world with data collection. And 
not only did everyone stay committed, but we now have, I think, close to 200 people in the consortium. And we daily have people applying and we now have peer review members. So even more when you include them. And it's, it's, it's heartwarming to see how much these health professionals are willing to do, including yourself. You know, there's so many people that are invested in our coalitions, in our groups, in our efforts to do that. And it's just incredible. Yeah. So I would say that is something that is the foundation that has allowed yeah. all of our work to take place. I think secondly, I'd say our research funding. So again, started with the dream in 2018. I think we gave out $25,000 and we've given out, you know, over a million for the past few years and our targets wow. are here. And to go from zero for this, for the community to apply to, to that, I, we get daily get thanks that we provide that. And then that, you know, leads to the research that's going to change the yeah. experiences of the patients. So I would say that that is incredibly rewarding. Um, and I would say, lastly, that the um, EDS Echo mm -hmm. has been incredible, you know, yeah. so popular with the first uh, rare disease Echo. Echo is a, is a uh, tele-mentoring platform that uh, teaches, it's an all teach, all learn concept, which encourages all health professionals, and we have lots of them now, um, from all over the world to bring their de-identified case studies and learn the best way to manage um, the, yeah. their patients. And it's been incredible. I mean, more successful than we could ever have hoped for. And we've hit our thousand targets. So wow. um, we, with that, we'll keep growing. And, and it's the more we, there's no such thing as an EDS expert. It's a health professional willing to learn how to care for our community. Yeah. And with that mentality, that's how we've gone out because any gastrointestinal expert, any neurologist, any rheumatologist, any geneticist, you know, any pediatrician can diagnose and manage these conditions. And if yeah. we give them the tools to be able to feel like they have that, the confidence yeah. to do that, it will lead to so many people having people to turn to, to get Absolutely. those management and care. So it's a win-win all round. Absolutely. Amazing. I'm a huge fan of EDS Echo. Um, I've done, I'm on my second, I've attended one and then you can do your drop-in sessions. Um, yeah. So I just think they're brilliant. So, I, you know, anyone listening who hasn't tried it out, um, really valuable. You can learn so much. And as Lara said, from people all over the world, lots of different perspectives. It's, it's brilliant. So thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so I mentioned that um, a few of my Zebra Club members, which is our online program for um, people living with hypermobility and EDS, they had a few questions for you. Um, so I'm just going to throw these in. Um, so you mentioned about um, how you've brought out um, the translations at the conferences, which is brilliant. So I had a lady living in France and she wanted to know, um, are there more plans to unite medical professionals and provide patients support in non-English speaking countries? Because she's finding it difficult to find professionals who are willing to create patient empowerment. So do we have more plans to sort of expand this? So I think, you know, through the efforts I've mentioned, ECHO is one of them where we're definitely yeah. going to do that. And we're yeah. trying to do that <clears throat> as globally as we can. Um, we are launching a new website at the beginning of next year and the hope mm -hmm. is to get to a point where the whole website is translated into 
at least the kind of five European languages and we hope more would grow. Okay. So yeah. that resources for sure. Yeah. Um, and continued community outreach because that then leads to people educating their doctors and hopefully bringing that all together. So yeah. <clears throat> yes, there is. Um, it's more, nothing necessarily new, but ongoing efforts in what we're doing yeah. that I've already mentioned. And, and it is changing, but it does, it, you know, I think it's going to take five to 10 years for people to truly feel the work that's happening now. And that's just, yeah. that sucks in many ways, but it's a reason to be hopeful and optimistic because people are already, oh. there's so many people now that go, I was diagnosed within a few months because of the work you're doing. Yet the people that took 15 years to get diagnosed are in such, you know, a, a more negative situation in terms of deconditioning, in terms of the kind of PTSD they've felt from that. Yeah. And for them to improve and get to a point where all of this is helping is going to, of course, take a lot of loss. And to reach out and to, to make it global, to make it equitable and to make it feel like everyone feels the impact of the changes that are being made. So yeah. there's a lot of work to do of and course you have to be patient but we're getting there yeah I mean it's a process isn't it and like you say if you think how much you've done in five years <laughs> yeah these things they take time they can't happen overnight and um but yeah totally certain reasons for hope absolutely um and you just mentioned it actually one of my ladies in America <clears throat> she wanted to know what could they do as patients to help raise awareness in their own communities because she wants to advocate and help it you know teach doctors teach her professionals um what could she do or what could people do so a few things we have a a section on our website called um how to get involved and on there is become a patient advocate and there's lots of links and resources there to help people to advocate, to raise awareness, to be able to spread that um, information. We have, I think, on that page as well, PowerPoints that people can use to present at local mm -hmm. hospitals. Okay. Clinics, things like that. Yeah. And then that captures all the correct terminology and information, so you don't have to worry about that as much, and it gives you the confidence to be able to do that. Yeah. And I'd also recommend looking into our Advocacy Echo, which is now the... Um, it's called a CLE program and it's focused on training the advocates to be able to do that work, kind of building up an army of people that can help raise that awareness. Mm. It's very much in demand. We have a long waiting list, but I would definitely recommend getting mm. the list and looking into that. Oh, amazing. That's fantastic. Mm. So there are so many things, aren't there? You, like you said, you had your oh, list. Oh, and just <laughs> here, I'm, I realised I didn't even mention Hedge which, you know, oh, yes. is a huge thing that we're proud of, which is $2 million going into finding the molecular causes behind hypermobile EDS. Yeah. Lots of things that, yeah. yeah. It's great. Uh, you can forget something as huge as that, but, yeah. yeah. And that will, of course, make a real impact when we get the yes. that. Fantastic, yeah. Um, you mentioned it earlier, and you, you mentioned that you're sort of re-looking at the criteria again. Um, one of our UK members um, feels that HSD tend or can be played down by medical professionals. Um, what can we do to help medical professionals understand HSD better so that it's not sort of a second, you know, the poor relation of EDS kind of thing? Absolutely. And I think that's going to take time. It's, if you think about it, it's just a few years old. Yeah. 
and the work we're doing at the moment to look at the criteria HSD, hypermobile ADS and the pediatric criteria for both will help yeah. as will, um, you know, research we're doing into the differences between the two. So in January, watch this space. We're going to be making a big announcement as to okay. the details of that criteria review work oh, great. Um, and efforts we're making to really increase the awareness and the, the, the validity behind HSD. Okay, fantastic. Um, and I'm just going to read you something because sometimes, you know, we're not aware of the impact of what we do for people on a personal level. So this is from one of the, um, our members. Um, and he just wanted to say that, well, thank you to you. And he said he first came across Lara and followed her blog when she was doing the London Marathon. And this was the same time that he was diagnosed with EDS3, as it was called back then. He thought his life would be totally turned on its head. But Lara's blog showed me that I can live a life with this issue. So he just wanted to say thank you to you that even your blog, you know, and you were just, that was, you know, when was the London Marathon? When was that? 2011. Oh, 2011. So that's a long time ago. So you wrote, yeah. So you wrote your blog back then and that inspired somebody to have hope, which is just amazing. So thank you. Yeah. So gosh, so, you know, making impacts when, you know, sometimes we don't realize how far reaching our little contributions are. So that's brilliant. Um, So, and again, you've told us so many things, but just very quickly, um, what can you share any other plans? What does the future hold for the EDS society sort of for next year or the next few years I know there's probably lots (laughs) (laughs) there's lots um well we're going to be making quite a few announcements at the beginning of next year um we've got more money to be able to give to research the registry is going to be relaunching um at the beginning of next year we're going to be telling you the details about the criteria review um we are looking into how our events will look going forward to that hybrid model. Mm-hmm. Um, we definitely won't be giving up that virtual component, so but we are yeah. going to going back into in-person as well. Um, we're really focusing on research and education. They're really the two pillars of our mission, and the research being trying to get as many requests for proposals out there that we can give funding to other external institutions to to do that research, build the registry and educate through ECHO and other means, both the community and the health professional community. So that's really where all of our focus is and the consequences of that really trickling down to making the community feel supported, um, validated, and that they feel like, you know, we're really here for them. Other, other exciting, as I mentioned, the new website launch, that's going to be huge. Um, it's so different. It's, you know, our website's great, but there's too much great information on there that you need like a sat-nav to get through. Yeah. And so yeah. the new one is going to be a really amazing right. experience that you can find things really well. And it's going to be split into like how we started this into the kind of community and then the health professionals. Yeah. Okay. Both and different things. And it's really exciting. It's really yeah. um we're hoping to increase what we're doing for our kind of kids and teens, youth community, um, lots of plans. We're, of course, next summer, the Centre of Excellence programme is going to be launching. We're launching in the new year a Research for Our Futures campaign, which is 
basically fundraising for our research and our centers of excellence, those two things that are so pivotal to taking things forward. Okay. Um, and yeah, lot, lots of yeah, analysis begins for Hedge. So there's going to be announcements. There's lots to think, be hopeful yeah. for yeah. and look forward to. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, so just, and yeah, so let's just come back to this. So you, you've, you obviously, we all know there's still lots and lots of work to do. Um, you did a tweet recently um, and it, you basically just said, I believe you. And it was a really powerful tweet and it got lots of engagement. So there's obviously lots of us out there who are still having those issues. And you mentioned, you know, people sadly are suffering maybe from medical PTSD. And, you know, a lot of us have had a really rough time. Um, what do you, you know, why did you send that tweet? What, what, what's, what do you feel that we still have to do to make our life? Sorry, that's my computer bleeping. Um, what do you feel we have to do to, um, you know, improve things for our community still? Yeah, I think I think I'd put it out because I remember very clearly what it was like to not be believed and how that makes you feel. And I think that there is so much PTSD from that. And, you know, I think it's it also is damaging in the sense that you're kind of told, potentially told for so long it's in your head, that when you get diagnosed and you are encouraged to think about your mental health as well, well as your physical health, there's a defence mechanism there because people are like, but it's not in my head. I don't need mental health support. Yeah. Without realizing that it's essential to be able to cope with the physical side of things. It's not saying things are in your head. So it's almost re-educating that yeah. point as well. And I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done. People's, you know, health professionals largely, um, but also community members. Um, I think there's a real social media is can be toxic. Um, I think there's a real I'm worse than you uh, group. Um, that are on kind of the Reddit forums and social media that they seem to think that there's a certain way of living with a chronic condition when there's no right and wrong way. And I think people need to be kind and be mindful that everyone is different. Everyone got to that, the point where they're at today. Yeah. Very different journeys. And some could have had exactly the same journey, but have experienced it in totally different ways. And that judgment makes people again not feel believed and not ex accepted by your own tribe to, so to speak yeah. and so i think it's very damaging and then if you think about the health professionals it's the language it's the unconscious bias it's the you know the limited time and funding that they have to be able to try and make a difference and sometimes you're sit in a 10 15 minute gp appointment and you'll present a list this long and they're just like what do I do with this? And so they go to the anxiety depression place because it's quickest and easiest and yeah. seems sense because no one could have that much wrong with them. So I think it's, it's a real, everyone has to take responsibility for this. And it's yeah. not, it's not victim blaming in the sense of, you know, the patients need to do stuff to help themselves. It's realizing that that feeling of not being believed and accepted can come both from within the patient community and the health professional community equally. Um, I remember when I had COVID at the beginning of last year, there was a whole Reddit channel set up on how it was trying to prove that I didn't have it and that I didn't have EDS and that I shouldn't be in the position I'm in. And that's from people living with the condition. It's like, what, what are you trying to achieve by that? And yeah. it, it triggers that 
back to like having to feel like you need to convince people that you're you're ill and that you've got something wrong with you yeah I'm grateful to say that's something that I've not really felt like I have to do but many do and it, it it's yeah. really harmful really toxic so yeah I think a lot of work that needs to be done and it will only be done through collaboration education and research and that's what Absolutely. we are doing yeah yeah thank you thank you Laura um so just stepping away from the EDS society just just briefly um just talking about you and I think we've kind of got a good idea now of what drives you but you know you do work very hard you know you're having you know late night conference calls in the middle of the night and you you know when you do your virtual events you're there all day you know long days and clearly you know you you've done a lot you, you work very hard so what drives you first of all and I think we kind of know but I, you know it's good to hear it again and how do you manage your condition with such a busy schedule? So I think firstly what drives me is the huge amount of work that still needs to be done and you know love me or hate me and there's people that hate me out there unfortunately um, for what and I'm glad to say the, the the majority are grateful for what we're doing but I am relentless in pursuing better quality of life for all those impacted by rare chronic and invisible conditions because I personally know what it's like to live with one but professionally I'm very um, lucky to be able to do a job where you can make such an impact and be good at it and and to have a vision to be able to see what's needed to be done and, and understanding how many people are needed to be able to do it. You know, it, it's always been from the start. Okay. This is what's needed. Who needs to be around the table? I cannot steer this ship alone, nor would I want to. And I think that is what drives me to know that there is so much that needs to be done. There are so many good people out there willing to help and do it. How do we do it together? How are we stronger together? And yeah. how can we make the biggest impact to as many people as we can? And I've met so many individuals along the way where it's no longer just my story that drives me. It's, you know, X and Y and Z and A and B and D and all the people that I have met along the way who have tragic stories, uplifting stories, things that people yeah. who passed away who I wish I could have done more for, who I see their face every day and you know how much more needs to be done for vets and how frustrating that is and all of these things yeah the, the question of why people still not believed the simple thing that just seems unthinkable if you think of yeah. someone having cancer you know although now knowing i know that there's trolling in that community too where there's that you know that that comparison and yeah say, comparison is the thief of joy so i think yeah you know, we just need to all be working together. So that's definitely what drives me, the yeah. amount done and knowing that I can make a difference to trying to yeah. you know, complete some of the things on that list. Yes, yeah. Um, and how do I cope? Well, <clears throat> I think it's a, it's a good question. It's a, it's a timely question because as, as you mentioned when we were talking just before this podcast started that I posted just yesterday about how I'm not on top of my symptoms right now. Yeah. And there's uh, a few different reasons as to why that is. I think that, and this is what I mentioned earlier, that 
the mental side of things is for me 70% of the barrier that I face because the physical things that I need to do to help myself which work so well are almost the easy part it's overcoming the you know, so for example if you break it down my kind of toolbox is is diet what I eat I know that if I cut out 70 to 80 percent of the time carbs sugar dairy um, and gluten I feel like a million dollars compared to what I feel like right now with a really swollen gut like bloated GI symptoms sluggish tired everything hurts more the hydration I managed to stay on top of because if I didn't I would be so deconditioned I wouldn't be able to work um, but movement is the other thing you know when I go to the gym pretty much four to six days a week and some days I'll just use the treadmill and walk I row most days rowing is I, I love it's brilliant for potsy stuff because you're sit seated yeah um, and it's you know close chain so it, it doesn't hurt my joints and my tears that I have yeah. and I weights um i do very little cardio the only cardio i do is rowing and i i can control that very easily and when i do that my goodness the difference i feel is astonishing and waking up in the morning practicing the law of attraction the miracle morning it's called meditating gratitude affirmations and some reading you know intentional yeah. and yeah. again when i spend an hour in the morning doing that it sets my day up in such a positive way yeah. And I go to bed at night just feeling a hundred times better. But to for some reason, so, you know, you go out for a, a meal with friends. You don't want to be the person that's sitting there going, yeah, I'm gluten-free. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No onions, no garlic. It's annoying. And you want to order the big dessert, melting coffee, cookie dough, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, cream. I love food. I love <laughs> I love sushi. I love everything that's bad for me. And, you know, there's only so many days you can be like, oh, I'll just have this one cheat. And then you realize that you've had that one cheat. Yeah, every yeah. And it's like anything, when you're doing it, it's actually, when I'm eating really well and consistently, I fancy that food much less. And I don't really yeah. it. But when yeah. you're in it and you're eating all everything you want to eat, it feels impossible to eat well. Yes. Um, yes. I with intermittent fasting as well which some people think is great. Other people is controversial. Most people do 16, eight, which is when you fast for 16 hours, you eat eight. I actually, okay. eat, which is one meal a day. And that right. helped me. But as I always say, everyone should speak to their doctor um, and yeah. find out what's best for them because it may not work for you. Yeah. Um, supplements, take vitamin C, vitamin D, magnesium. Um, and when I'm doing, I try and sleep, seven to eight hours a night my reality is more like five six but when i get those extra hour or two i do feel better and when all of that is in place i have a very good quality of life and i really yeah. but yeah. since august the only thing i've done regularly and consistently is take my supplements and hydrate the movement and the diet have gone out the window and i feel it my god do i feel it i feel yeah. terrible at the moment so yeah. uh, i woke up it's monday I woke up this morning, I did my miracle morning and I already feel so much more aligned and ready to go. And for me, I always, when I've been at a place deconditioning mentally and physically, I start with the mental first because you need that to do the physical. So absolutely, yeah. I'm starting this week focusing on my food and, you know, I say food rather than diet because diet is always thought of as losing weight and I'm certainly not yeah. trying to do that. So I'm thinking about what I'm eating, what I'm drinking 
and doing my meditation affirmations and gratitude. And I know that next Monday, so today, a week, I'll be on a plane flying to the US for the first time. Oh, wow. It's awesome. possible to eat well and to, to, to move, but I'm going to really try and stay on top of it. And then when I get back from that trip, I'm going to hit the movement. So yeah. that's my plan. I hope I stick to it. And I know I always can get back to it, but you know, the challenge is real and I'm not putting out there that it's easy. It's, it's no. work every single day for the rest of your life. It's like taking a pill, but if only if it was that easy, it's yeah. utterly exhausting to be able to stay on top of it, but it's essential. Yeah, totally agree. Absolutely. Um, mm. And I'm really happy to see movement in there as part of your um, routine. But yeah, you know, it's a long game, isn't it? There are, as I always say to my clients, there are no quick fixes. Unfortunately, we are in it for the long game. And yeah, um, yeah like you say, you're constantly working at it. It's not that we can just say, oh, well, that's it. I'm done. It doesn't work like that. And um, that's really important, isn't it? That people understand that, that we're Absolutely. constantly we're having to look after ourselves. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Laura. Um, just finally, just just let us know um, how people can find out um, about the, your work and the EDS Society upcoming events and everything like that. Well, if you type Laura Bloom, L-A-R-A, Bloom, B-L-O-O-M, into pretty much any platform except TikTok, haven't quite got there yet. <laughs> you can find me. Uh, I have a monthly, well, or at least quarterly blog on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, and you can find out what I'm doing. And then the same with the Ellis Danos Society, www.ellis-danos.com, and then everything you can find from there. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and I think we we are about to hit TikTok. I think we're already oh. there. Oh, I'll look out for that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, amazing. Well, thank you so much for all your time today and um, answering all the questions. Um, um, it's been really, really great and um, it's a real pleasure to speak with you today. Um, so thank you for all our listeners for tuning in today. Um, if you have any comments, please leave them in the, in the comment box below. And as Lara said, if you want to reach out to her, um, she's on all the social media platforms um, and I'm sure she will get back to you. Um, but thank you all for listening and keep moving. <laughs>